I'm Adrian Miller, the soul food scholar who's dropping knowledge like hot biscuits, and this is the Eat Kentucky Podcast. Welcome back to the Eat Kentucky Podcast, where we celebrate Kentucky, its food, and its culture. This is your host, Alan Cornett. Adrian Miller, James Beard award-winning author of Soul Food, is back. If you haven't listened to episode 17, where Adrian and I talk about Chef Dolly Johnson, an African-American White House chef from Lexington, I would encourage you to do so. There, we also explore Adrian's background and discuss his books. I asked Adrian to come back to the podcast to discuss his article about Louisville barbecue pitmaster and restaurateur David McAtee, who was killed during the summer's Louisville protests. Also, one of the recent brand reassessments from this summer has led to the retiring of the Aunt Jemima brand. That, too, has a Kentucky connection, as the first person to assume the Aunt Jemima role was Nancy Green from Montgomery County, Kentucky. Adrian offers his insight and expertise in recognizing both of these Kentucky culinary figures. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Eat Kentucky podcast and to leave a five-star rating. Also, you can help support Eat Kentucky by visiting patreon.com slash eatkentucky. Now join me as I talk with author Adrian Miller. Adrian Miller, welcome back to Eat Kentucky. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So last time we spoke, we were both kind of locked down uh, in the early period of the of the pandemic lockdowns, and things aren't over yet. We know, but but at least um, at least they're letting us out of the house a little bit now. So how are things going <laughs> for you in in Denver? I'm doing well. Um... Things are going well here. We were managing things for a while with the pandemic, but we're starting to see an uptick in cases. So uh, we'll just have to see how that goes. I don't know if that means a lockdown or stay-at-home order is in our future again, but you know, we're just—I'm wearing my mask and trying to be safe. So hopefully, others will too. Right. I think we're trying to figure out. This is one of those things we're figuring out as we go along. We've, um, you know, of course, things here in Kentucky were opened up and have been somewhat opened up. We've we've got a mask mandate. Uh, as we're seeing in a lot of places now in our cases, which have not been uh, too bad, have have started to tick up a little bit too. So we're we've got our fingers crossed. Uh, Kentucky's got a good football team this fall, so we want to be able to see those guys play. <laughs> <laughs> we we think we've got a team that can compete in the SEC. So uh, for when you're a Kentucky fan, uh, you don't want to squander those opportunities. So. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that'll work out for us, but, uh, but we're glad to be getting out a little bit. Have you gotten to, to go to visit any of your favorite restaurants? Yeah. So I've been trying to support as much as I can. Um, and so like my favorite barbecue place places here in Denver, I've pretty much all been able to hit up. There's a West African place that I really love here. They're a little further out, so it's harder to get to them, but I've been trying to support them. Um, and there's a Jamaican place that I really like. Uh, and then just like here and there, but most of the time though, I've been doing home cooking 
or I've been really lucky. A lot of people want to cook for me for some reason. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, you, you Maybe when this is done, you can tell me your secrets for that. I need to, I need to find out, find <laughs> out what the, what the key to having other people cook for me is. I, I, uh, of course, you know, uh, I've, I've had no shortage of food apparently during, during the lockdown. So I, I really probably don't need to have people cook for me for a while, but um, of course, uh, one of the, one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on was uh, you mentioned barbecue was your background. I know you're working right now on a, on a barbecue book uh, that's supposed to come out, I think next year. And you did a piece uh, for food and wine on, on David McAtee, who is the the Louisville barbecue pit master and, and chef and restaurateur. And I want to talk to you a little bit about about that piece and and uh, some about what you what you had to think about uh, about that situation. Yeah, yeah, no, um, yeah. So it's a very uh, tragic situation. Unfortunately, we've had too many of these tragic situations in our nation's history. Um, but you know, this moment does seem different because uh, a lot of people are joining in on the protest. It, the, the makeup of people who are protesting the racial injustices happening is very diverse. Um, and so it's really uh, heartening to see that and be more heartening to see racial justice uh, come from this, but it's been really interesting. Uh, yeah, so the story of David McAtee, you know, I just came across it in the newspaper. Um, and as I read more of his story, how he was a revered barbecue man, which is not an honorific title that comes easily to anyone. Because you know, right. you got at the end of the day, you got to know what you're doing and make it barbecue. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. People will people will judge barbecue harshly a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. So to get that title, to see how generous he was, uh, you know, even feeding law enforcement, uh, letting people run, kind of a tab basically uh, when people needed a job, helping out. It just seemed like he was a um, a person who represented some of the best of the barbecue tradition, as I wrote in Food and Wine. You know, first he was good at what he did. Um, throughout history and the African American barbecuers that I've discovered, uh, generosity is definitely a common trait. Um, sure. Yeah, and it, you know, meeting the needs of their community, but also how often Afri- African American restaurateurs are involved in their community and they are de facto community leaders. So to see him uh, step into that moment of protest and be present and then actually to be at his place doing what he does, one of the things that he does best, making barbecue and having his life in literally at the grill, um, you know, just it just really resonated with me. Right. It was certainly uh, a tragic and and poignant um, end for him. And uh, you know, reading your article and some of the other uh, articles about it, he he certainly seems like someone who was very generous. I know pretty much everything I read about him talked about how he was always donating food, including to police officers. Right. And uh, that it's just really awful uh, that that would happen when, you know, I know that he, he had a goal of, of having a, 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 sit down kind of restaurant, uh, in Louisville. And that was something, I guess that was really pushed back somewhat because of his own generosity, because giving away food isn't the way to, uh, to move ahead in the, in the restaurant industry. Yeah. 
it, it, in many ways, it's the best and worst business model, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Sure. Yeah, yeah, everybody loves it. And it and it certainly uh, a lot of times you have you have really worthy causes. But at the same time, you're, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage and, and forcing him to put his his own dreams on hold. Yeah. You know, and that's uh, that's another way that he kind of represents the black barbecue tradition, because uh, so many African-American entrepreneurs, not just in barbecue, but in so many spaces are usually underfinanced because they don't have access to capital in the way that others do. So the fact that he had been cooking in Louisville for a couple of decades, at least. Right. And was on this search right. to get a more permanent place just shows the struggle of the African-American entrepreneur. So he symbolized that aspect as well. And of course, uh, the legacy that he has left, certainly uh, people remember him, but also Chef Edward Lee has named his uh, one of his new Lee Initiative projects after him, the Mcatee Kitchen that he has um, has there in Louisville now. Yeah, that's been interesting because I've been able to write about that for a, a platform called Resi.com. So I just wrote something about that. So I kind of tell the story of what Chef Lee's trying to do. Uh, how he's being there for the community and he's told the community that he's going to be there in the long haul. Cause he was at McAtee. The family asked him to speak at McAtee's funeral. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, yeah. So he just said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in this for the long haul essentially. Um, and I talked about uh, chef Nakia Rhodes, who uh, kind of has grown up under <laughs> chef Lee and his mentorship programs. And um, right. so she's the head chef of that community kitchen. And she was really her. I, I think when uh, chef Lee, said that when he was bouncing around what to call the kitchen, uh, there was some pushback from members of his team that it may not be appropriate to name it after McAtee. But Chef Rhodes said, if you did, it would mean so much to me. And that kind of sealed the deal. Well, the Lee Initiative uh, in Kentucky, and it's something that I'm looking forward to exploring more uh, in the podcast. The Lee Initiative certainly is one of the big, if not the biggest, uh, food story uh, and certainly initiative in the state of Kentucky. I think right now there's uh, there's so much that they they've done, not just in Louisville, but also uh, there, there was a strong presence for the Lee Initiative in Lexington, providing food for restaurant workers during the lockdown and making sure that they were supported. And of course. Uh, he Chef Lee keeps finding new ways to uh, to make a difference with the Lee Initiative. Yeah, he's a he's a really good guy, um, and he's just doing really next level things for the community. So it's a great that Louisville has him as a community asset. And of course, we're talking about your food and wine article, and I, that will be linked in show notes. I'm talking with Adrian Miller, who's a James Beard Award winning writer and. Uh, wrote the book Soul Food, and also is working on a book called Black Smoke. Is that that title right? The working title, that title right? That title is correct, yes. Yeah, uh, on on black uh, barbecue uh, pitmasters. And so that should be coming out next year, and, and um, I'm sure that that's some of the things that have been going on this summer will will make an appearance in that book i suspect not that i'm writing your book for you but uh <laughs> but I, <laughs> yeah, I, so, I suspect there's a lot of a lot of information there yeah absolutely so um in a nutshell the book is really about kind of african-american barbecue tradition 
and how um, how that has woven in and out of the mainstream idea of barbecue in our country. So I, I start off by talking about how barbecue is Native American in origin, at least that's the foundation, and how um, Western European kind of quick grilling traditions get grafted onto what Native Americans were doing to smoke meat and to create this new thing, right? Kind of like a fusion dish. And then how African-Americans become the principal cooks for barbecue in the 1700s and well-established in the 1800s, so much so that culturally it's hard to find uh, cultural space between African-Americans and barbecue by the time you get to the mid 1800s. Um, and then I just talk about different aspects of the culture, like uh, church barbecue, competition barbecue, uh, entrepreneurs in barbecue. Uh, and uh, fast forward to the present day when a century later, African-Americans don't get much love, uh, at least from media, when it comes to barbecue. So I kind of I kind of trace how that happens and how messed up that is. And I'm hoping for a restoration. Um, and by no means does my book say that anybody but African-Americans can cook barbecue. That's not that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that African-Americans have a unique tradition that should be celebrated. And if we're going to talk about the big world of barbecue, you got to include African-Americans. Sure, and I'm I'm sure that your book will go a long way to uh, to helping that. And we talked about this when I had you on not too long ago. Uh, we will definitely have you back next year when that when that book comes out because you you teased a little bit of Kentucky connection, and you know that that's uh, that's always a way to lure me in <laughs> on uh, on on these situations. So I, I wanted to touch base with you too uh, about uh, another Kentucky connection that was in the news. And that was the, the renaming of the Aunt Jemima brand, or I guess the retiring of that brand by Quaker Oats and PepsiCo. But the Kentucky connection to that through Nancy Green, who was the first face of the Aunt Jemima brand, what, 150 years ago almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she um, was born and raised in Kentucky, uh, rural Kentucky. And my understanding is that uh, eventually she became uh, the cook for a very prominent family um, and worked not only for the kind of the first generation, but the kids. And uh, eventually uh, the Walkers, I believe their name is. And um, eventually they wind up in Chicago and um, through some connections and things when the 1893 Columbian Exposition in, uh, is, happens in Chicago, which is a huge deal at that time. Oh, yes, sure. She gets tapped to be the representative for this fictional character um, and then goes on to play the character for a couple of decades, so much so that um, a lot of people couldn't separate her from the character. Um, and, you know, I, I have been getting queries about her dying as a million or becoming a millionaire. And I got to say, I, I just don't see that. Uh, most of what I see is that she kind of lived in obscurity after that run as Aunt Jemima. And I don't think she died wealthy at all. Well, I was going to ask you about that because that's uh, you see a lot of reference to that when I was uh, doing the, the research that I did about her because she she was born in Montgomery County, Mount Sterling, which is about forty five minutes east of Lexington, where I'm where I'm based. So it's it's uh, not far from here. Lots of Mount Sterling connections. Uh, so she was from Central Kentucky and was born. Uh, into into slavery uh, in the 1830s, I believe, and then ended up, as you said, in Chicago. 
so there's a lot of uh, a lot of reporting, certainly, that she became wealthy in doing that. Um, I, I've seen references to her being a philanthropist, and I know uh, something that would would be up your alley is that she was a, a founding member of Chicago's Olivet Baptist Church. Um, yeah, hugely and, influential church. Yeah, and so she was she was obviously obviously had a uh, an active role in that, but you think that the, there's some question about about how wealthy uh, that she would have been. Yeah, because I, I I gotta tell you, I looked through all of my records and I just have not seen that. Um, I don't even mm-hmm. know how that got started, and you know, it may be because of all the money that Quaker made off that character that people inferred that she must have been compensated fairly. But if they know typical U.S. history. Um, People usually are not compensated fairly uh, in these situations, and I think that was the case. I know that um, there was a lawsuit that was filed by the the uh, progeny of the woman who played Aunt Jemima after Nancy Green, I guess, quote unquote, uh, stopped, you know, retired or stopped doing it. Right. Um, and that lawsuit got dismissed, uh, but basically they were saying that Quaker Oats uh, exploited, um, you know, Harrington. I think was her last name uh, for playing that role. So, um, and yeah. I also saw a reference to uh, someone who had played the role in Texas. I believe that that family, uh, her descendants were. I saw an article that they were unhappy about the change because because of their association with it. So I guess they would have had uh, maybe local or regional uh, individuals making. I, I guess being spokes spokeswomen for the the brand over the years so there would have been different ones but but nancy nancy green to my understanding was the was the first and original uh of the of the aunt jemima uh brands spokespersons yep that's my understanding as well so in a situation like that where you have um where you have this brand that's been around for I guess 150 years uh, under different ownership and so forth. And you have somebody like a Nancy Green. Is, in your opinion, is it a, a, a net positive, net negative to to take away that brand? Do you think that that was a, a good move? Is that was something? Was that something you were happy to see from from Quaker? Yeah, I, I just think it's long overdue, um, and it's a case of uh, when you really, when you know the history of why that brand was started and what it meant. Uh, you know, it should have been retired or, or renamed a long time ago. Um, so I, I'm, I was glad to see it. Um, I know my mom loved Aunt Jemima products. In fact, when she made her cornbread, she loved Aunt Jemima cornmeal. So um, they have a good product. I just think they should have a different name. And you know what was sure, really sure. interesting in this time is how many people were who don't know the history were saying, well, why are they taking their they were actually trying to make a pro-black argument saying they're erasing <laughs> black faces from commercial uh, products. Um, but they didn't know that they didn't know the prior history. So I, I just, just like a, another kind of goofy moment in our times. Right. We've, you know, of course uh, we've seen a lot of, of brand reassessment and name changes uh, and so forth in the, in the past, well, six weeks, even it's not, it's just, it's been uh really since since the protests began a couple of months ago. But when you have a, a situation uh, like 
the Aunt Jemima character. Obviously, you, you know, you have you have families like the Texas family, and I, I apologize for not having their name. Um, you know, th- they're, they're mixed feelings, clearly, uh, on the part of some, because they, you know, that, that connection to, to that cultural icon is, is severed and lost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. And we, we have a couple icons still left. I mean, I don't know if how many people know the story of Uncle Ben. Um, although, um, the company that produces that has done a lot to kind of rewrite his history. If you go back to the early advertisements, um, it definitely talks about him being uh, formerly enslaved and being, uh, you know, the type of ser- a faithful servant, like that vibe. And that, mm-hmm. you know, so Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben and Raustus of Prima Wheat, they're kind of all part and parcel of the same vibe. So when that, uh, during that period, when those, when those brands were launching, uh, what was the appeal or what was the I guess what was the marketing idea in making those associations yeah so it was a, a real co- toxic cultural mix so what we have to understand is that most people thought that african americans were natural servants so the real message was about servitude and inferiority and um cooking was in food service was a part of that so um, the idea was that black people are natural for this type of work and genetically they're, you know, and there was a lot of rationalizations as to why they were perfect for this kind of work, but you know, they're natural born cooks, uh, natural servants, that sort of thing. So I think in the deep psychology, the white psychology, what was, what was trying to be tapped was um, maybe feelings of childhood. I'm um, cause a lot of people grew up with a figure like Aunt Jemima as the family servant um, and so trying to tap those, those childhood feelings of nostalgia, but it's really this, this idea that these are standard bearers for excellence in food service. And so if you have a person, an African-American as kind of the face of this product, it, it, it signals to a lot of white consumers that it must be good because those black people know how to cook. So this must be a good thing to cook with. Gotcha. So it's, uh, I mean, marketing is marketing. You see, uh, like you said, pulling on nostalgia and uh, and kind of mark people in marketing are trying to to trigger our emotional and subconscious feelings, I guess, about a lot of things. And and they were doing the same thing at the end of the nineteenth century that they're doing at the beginning of the twenty first century. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Well, I, one of the things that I I wanted to to do with with this episode and this uh, this interview with you, and I appreciate you coming on, was was really to talk about these two Kentucky figures, so that we we do have them in our consciousness, because uh, you know David McAtee, someone who uh, who had struggled to make a name for himself, and and to uh, to build that business only to have those dreams cut short, despite his, his great, um, his great contributions that he'd made to the community. And of course, uh, Nancy Green is somebody also a Kentuckian who, uh, who really had a, a, a tremendous impact, uh, culturally, uh, in, in the food world. I mean, everybody knows the Aunt Jemima brand and she was the first one associated with that. Mm-hmm. 
You know, um, and previously in podcast, we talked about Dolly Johnson, you know, right. who, uh, a Lexington, Kentucky uh, person who had a real influence on White House cooking in the 18, late 1880s, early 1890s. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I would encourage folks to go back and listen uh, to that where we, we delve into that in detail. Yeah. So, you you know, you raise an interesting question that I've been thinking about um, because seriously, Kentucky was renowned for its food culture for a long time, but that starts to slip away in like the 70s and 80s, as far as I can tell. Uh, and I'm not sure why that happened. Well, we're we're working hard to, to bring that back. I ha- Well, I hadn't thought about it in quite those terms. Of course, from my perspective, I guess my, you know, of course, I was that's that's as long as I've been alive. <laughs> but uh, uh, um, yeah. from my perspective, Kentucky's Kentucky, I guess. It, uh, I, I'm interested in your in your viewpoint from outside of the state, though. That's that's interesting to me because of the of the you know the perception that others outside the state would have. Of course, our uh, our the thing that's that's most known is is Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? And, uh, and Colonel Sanders, that's the, I guess, the flagship uh, item, even though Kentuckians like other things we've talked about, there's sort of a mixed relationship there, <laughs> whether whether that's what we want to, to, to be known for or not. But uh, but that's sort of the, the, the biggie. And then Duncan Hines, of course, was uh, was an actual food writer who who lived here in Kentucky and so that's uh, a lot of times that name is not directly associated with Kentucky in people's minds but Duncan Hines was a Kentuckian and lived in Kentucky yeah and I you know um, I think about Marion Flexner who was uh, very influential um, you know had cook a very you know very uh, a, a strong Kentucky food booster so um, yeah I just it's just been curious to me so as someone outside of the state, it just seems like, uh, first of all, I don't know if people really think of Kentucky as part of the South when they say Southern cooking. Um, I think they, I think their imaginations gravitate to the lower South. So they think as legit quote unquote South would be Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Louisiana. Um, and I'm just, I'm just talking about going around the country and talking to people about Southern food. First of all, you should just know outside the South, a lot of people have heard of Southern food, but they really actually don't know what it is. Right. Um, believe it or not. So I think there's that um, barbecue. Kentucky gets overlooked. And I did that this morning when I was doing an interview. A woman asked me to give a quick overview of regional barbecue styles. And I completely forgot about Owensboro. Um, well, Mama we'll uh, we'll we'll give you a pass on that this time. But um. <laughs> but no, just to show you how deep that is. Right. Like um, and I, I think part of it is because I don't think there are enough people celebrating that regional style compared to others. So right. you know, people in other parts of the country are working hard to keep um, their barbecue style in people's imagination. And I don't see a lot of Kentuckians doing that. I think part of the problem with that um, is that, that Kentucky's barbecue, that's native barbecue, which is really based in Western Kentucky and Owensboro, um, and far western Kentucky with the fancy farm political picnic, and then also southern Kentucky. Th- those are not urban areas, and you know, sort of Lexington, Louisville, northern Kentucky, close to Cincinnati. 
is where you have your population centers. It's where you have a lot of your press. And I think that that may have something to do with some of the, maybe the native uh, Kentucky barbecue styles not getting the attention that they really deserve. Gotcha. Okay. I, I, I just, I've been curious about it. Um, and I, I may write about it at some point. Um, Please do. We'll have yeah. you back on and talk about it, but tell you, you need, I need to get you to Kentucky. We'll do a barbecue tour and, uh, and check out all these, uh, all these styles that, uh, that you need to know about. That way you won't forget the next time. <laughs> Good. <talk> about it. <laughs> I feel embarrassed, man. I mean, just as soon as you asked that question, I was like, Oh dang. I forgot. <laughs> Well, I do appreciate you being on today, and uh, I, I do want to refer people back to our earlier interview, which was a few weeks ago, uh, where we do uh, delve into some of your background, which is fascinating, and uh, and of course explore Dolly Johnson as a uh, as a White House chef and her influence, which is really profound. And we will definitely have you back on uh, when the book comes out and talk more about barbecue and make sure that you, that you don't leave Kentucky off the, off the barbecue list. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I appreciate that, man. I need the, <laughs> I need the tutelage. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that you're the, you're the expert here. So, uh, but I really do appreciate you being on and the, the article uh, in food and wine on David McAtee will be linked uh, in show notes. And I'll also put a link up to, the Lee Initiative McAtee Kitchen, which is really just getting started and I know is going to do tremendous work. Yeah, and let me and let me send you the link for the resi.com article because that, it's a good oh, one. Oh, yes, That's please cool. do. Yeah. And so we'll have that in show notes as well uh, where you write about the Lee Initiative and, and the McAtee Kitchen. So I want to thank you for being on uh, and uh, and talking about these these Kentucky issues with me. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. And we'll have you back soon. Thanks a All lot. Right. Peace. You can find links to Adrian's articles and show notes, as well as links to his social media. Please hit the subscribe button to the Eat Kentucky podcast to be notified of future episodes, and please leave a five-star rating. It really helps others find the podcast. Also, please tell a friend who might enjoy the podcast. You can follow my other explorations of Kentucky food on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I would love for you to visit the new Eat Kentucky Patreon at patreon.com slash eatkentucky, where you can support the podcast and receive bonuses and previews. The Eat Kentucky theme is by Art Mize. If you have any questions or comments, you can mail me at eatkentucky at gmail.com. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Lexington area, I'm a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. I would love to talk to you. Until next time, this is Alan Cornett.